Well, good evening. It's uh, very good to see um, everyone here this evening for our Media and Communication Department public lecture. Uh, I'm Sonia Livingstone. I'm the head of the Media and Communication Department, as I think many of you here already know. And it's my pleasure this evening to welcome Professor Philip Schlesinger, who will deliver this evening's lecture. Professor Schlesinger has been long known for developing the very successful Sterling Media Research Institute. And more recently, in 2007, he was appointed to a new chair in cultural policy at Glasgow University, where he directs the Centre for Cultural Policy Research. He's been visiting professor at many institutions around the world, including the European University in Florence, the Complutense University of Madrid, the Universities of Oslo, Lugano, Toulouse, and the Maison des Sciences de l'Homme in Paris. All I reflected very nice places to spend some time in. There are other, anyway. <laughs> um, Professor, Professor Schlesinger is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and the Royal Society of Edinburgh and an academician of the Academy of Social Sciences. He chairs the Scottish Advisory Committee of Ofcom, uh, um, communications regulator, and has led a series of high-profile consultancy and research projects on matters of communication, regulation, and cultural policy. He's also, as many of you will know, a joint editor of the UK's premier journal in our field, Media, Culture and Society, and the author of many books, uh, including, and I have a long list here, Putting Reality Together, Media, State and Nation, Televising Terrorism, Women Viewing Violence, Reporting Crime, Open Scotland, Mediated Access, and most recently, The Sage Handbook of Media Studies, and the European Union and the public sphere, a communicative space in the making. So as you see, he has a wide range of interests and expertise. And we're delighted that he could come to address us this evening, and his title is appropriately enough, The Politics of Media and Cultural Policy, and we are very pleased to welcome him to speak to us today. Professor Livingstone, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank the Department of Media and Communication for the kind invitation to give this lecture, and thanks to you all for coming, and thanks for the plug. It's a particular pleasure to be back at the LSE. I did my PhD here in the Department of Sociology, and it's really nice to renew my link with the school this evening. Uh, in this lecture, I want to discuss the role of academics in media and cultural policy debates. In many respects, this involves thinking sociologically about how policy is constructed, who gets involved, and why. Um, what I should say before I go into these slides is that uh, they were produced on a Mac. They were sent uh, to the school. I was told that they would show images. There are no images, so you have very unadorned slides. Uh, however, I am truly better than this. Okay. I'd like to talk about some issues of theory and also to provide a few illustrations of my argument, some of which are based on HRC-funded research I've been doing on creative industries policies in the United Kingdom and Scotland. A lot of what I have to say is also influenced by my modest engagement in public life for the past five years I've sat on Ofcom's advisory committee for Scotland, 
This year, I've been chairing that body. Undertaking such a role makes you reflect on the scope and limits of the influence you can bring to bear on policy-relevant discussion. It makes you think about what academics can and perhaps should do. When I was invited to give this lecture, I was asked to consider media policy alongside cultural policy, and I'm happy to do so. Although I do now think, as the implications of the digital revolution begin increasingly to sink in, that not only are we experiencing a far-reaching convergence of technologies, but also one in which the domains of policy are converging. Put it differently, policy fields are under particularly far-reaching and rapid challenge. If you take communications regulation, for instance, it's clear that we can't neatly separate out how the current problems posed by post-credit crunch media economics is impacting on the press, telecoms, and on broadcasting. Rupert Murdoch's goal of, as we now say, monetizing news corporations' internet-distributed newspaper content has propelled his commercial interests into a head-on clash with the BBC's publicly funded web presence. This kind of competition really brings home the point that aside from its traditional incarnation in print, newspaper content is also distributed by websites and that here, aside from text and stills, audio and video webcasting also take place. The change in distribution systems is also a change in cultural form that reshapes the market and consumption. Or, to take another example, for more than two centuries, museums have been at the heart of traditional nation-building cultural policy, the emphasis being on collection, curation and display, and latterly, the active cultivation of audiences. But last week, the Tate announced that it was getting into the movie business by teaming up with the animator's Ardman. The museum aims to harness children's creativity in making this new animation. This kind of initiative totally bypasses the established terrain of film production support occupied by the UK Film Council and instead comes out of legacy trust funding to support the 2012 Olympics. This shows how the fit between the purposes of public institutions, the market, technological possibility, and popular creation is changing rapidly. Inevitably, the political class will once again be rethinking the institutional policy map, and that's already underway, uh, underway in the field of film policy. All of that said, however, I'm still struck by the quite traditional form of some debates. Let's take the current ding-dongs in the field of broadcasting, which are centred more than ever on the BBC, not least because of the deep economic difficulties being faced by its competitor terrestrial TV companies, and along with this, B-Sky-B's unceasing campaign to shrink the scope of public service broadcasting. Broadcasting debate, historically speaking, has been highly structured because so much of it has been driven by government statements the setting up and reporting of inquiries and the responses made to these in the public domain. Just compare it to film policy, for instance, to see the difference in the prominence and sustained attention achieved. In broadcasting, there are ritual moments in the annual cycle during which statements are made by prominent figures, those judged to be the key players in the field, after which noisy position-taking ensues. One such moment is the annual Edinburgh Television Festival. In August this year, in the set-piece McTaggart lecture, James Murdoch 
CEO of News Corporation in Europe and Asia, a true chip off the old block, inveighed against the BBC as having a chilling effect, as threatening media plurality through state-sponsored journalism. He also accused the BBC of making a land grab on the market. This had an extraordinary resonance among the commentariat and the political class and forced the BBC into rebuttal mode. Three weeks after Mr Murdoch's Little Sally, the BBC's Director General Mark Thompson replied using another ritual platform, that of the Royal Television Society's Cambridge Convention. This meeting modestly builds itself as the UK's preeminent high-level gathering of broadcasting executives. That is to say, it's much more exclusive than Edinburgh, and it's routinely addressed by the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport. Now, of course, we're in a pre-electoral mode in the UK. Some can detect the deals being made behind the scenes. Last month, Rupert Murdoch's son shifted from supporting New Labour to championing the Tories. Coincidentally, the Conservative leader, David Cameron, has threatened to clip Ofcom's wings, saying it would not continue in its present form should his party come to power. Mr Murdoch is less than keen on Ofcom's challenge to B-Sky-B's present dominance of the pay TV market. In June, the regulator found that the broadcaster should be forced to sell its premium content, Sky Sports and Sky Movies, to its rivals, Virgin Media and BT, at up to one-third less than it presently charges. James Murdoch has denounced the regulator's approach as a threat to the climate for investment. Mr Cameron's menaces have been reiterated by his culture spokesman, Jeremy Hunt, who said that Ofcom's remit needs to be changed with the aim of returning policy-making powers to ministers. Now, we can properly debate whether or not Ofcom makes policy as well as regulating. It's undoubtedly a sensitive question, and we may have justifiably critical views about how effectively consumer versus citizen interests are addressed by the regulator. For present purposes, though, I think the really interesting issue lies elsewhere. What the Tory leader has identified as a particular threat is Ofcom's unparalleled analytical and research expertise. The continuous outpouring of Ofcom reports and their associated consultations has successfully dominated the field of debate ever since the regulator was set up. This lends itself to satire and frequent complaint and a ghastly new psychological condition, submission fatigue. But whatever its excesses, remove this important ideas factory capacity and communications regulation would be seriously weakened. Where will the expertise migrate? Its intended dispersal is precisely the point, because future struggles about broadcasting policy will depend on who controls the commanding heights of public discourse, as well as, of course, the political power to push policies through. I shall return to the question of expertise shortly, as it's central to my theme. While discussing current broadcasting policy debate, we might also note the interventions of Ben Bradshaw, the current Culture Secretary. Less than three years after New Labour set up the BBC Trust in the wake of the Hutton Inquiry, Mr Bradshaw is calling for it to be dismantled. Mr. Bradshaw is an advocate of using the license fee to fund the market failure of commercial television 
in the field of news to the exclusion of other possible solutions. Uh, we're not allowed to call this top slicing. The Conservatives oppose this use of public money but instead want to severely reduce the licence fee. Talk of 30% cuts is presently circulating. After a period of increasingly qualified support for the corporation, the Labour government, seemingly in its dying days, appears to have entered the current BBC bashing competition with a will. Agreeing with Mr Bradshaw, the Conservatives have already indicated that the BBC Trust's lifespan, and certainly that of its current leadership, is limited. And indeed, Mr Hunt has also threatened to rip up the BBC's charter. As with Ofcom, with all its shortcomings, relatively autonomous broadcasting regulation appears to present an obstacle to political power, the very power that created it in the first place. But let me return to the structure of the debate. These few protagonists are unquestionably setting the scene. And what's so striking is just how few they are and that it's a handful of institutional power positions that utterly monopolizes the articulation of thinkable futures. Rather than moving beyond these parameters, the commentariat is limited to largely moving the pieces around the board. And while there's certainly an academic network interested in policy issues in the UK, it's very small relative to the size of the research community as a whole, and very few of its members are in a position even minimally to affect debate. But do let us note one current response to the extremely narrow elite domination of the scene, that of the admirable Professor Sylvia Harvey, who's brought together a new grouping, the Citizens Coalition for Public Service Broadcasting, launched only last week, to articulate public good arguments. If this succeeds in even modestly influencing the shape of the discourse, it will be doing exceptionally well. Like broadcasting policy, cultural policy still exists and it's facing related challenges, not least because of its continuing displacement by creative economy policy. In most practical respects, the politics of cultural policy still plays itself out within national political systems, within national public spheres, that is, within states. The state can be a useful analytical framework, but it has limitations. It's limited because the idea of cultural and communication sovereignty is challenged by global flows and transnational systems of governance. If states orientate themselves to the extraterritorial demands that shape their politics, policies today, they also cannot avoid addressing their own internal cultural diversity unless they seek to ignore or repress it. States such as the United Kingdom do not necessarily coincide with their component nations. The UK is a state of nations and therefore of several different national cultures and at a time of intensified identity politics the UK faces a variety of challenges to an overarching conception of Britishness. Cultural policy is formed where culture and politics intersects. It brings into relation diverse ways of life and the institutionalised form of the state. Cultural policy is articulated within the economy, polity and society. It's moulded by the tensions between profit and aesthetic value, by the shifting boundaries between the private and the public, by the vagaries of social and cultural inclusion and exclusion, and so forth. It's frequently a key playground for intellectuals amongst whom we should and do include academics. 
And here I fear, you know, the, the photos would have, would have helped the story, but uh, just try to use your imagination, as, as with all the, the flags I had on a, an earlier slide. In this connection, the distinguished sociologist Sigmund Bauman has argued that modern intellectuals developed with the emergence of the culture itself, culture being conceived as an autonomous space for action. Bauman has described intellectuals as a key expert stratum that developed with the Enlightenment. Their initial role, he argues, was that of legislator. They articulated the ideology of a new order, impatient of diversity and backwardness, and were in the vanguard of centralizing polities and cultures. In postmodernity, where epistemological certainties have collapsed, Bauman suggests, the role of intellectuals has shifted from legislator to interpreter, to a more modest role of making sense of cultures. Postmodern intellectuals, who are mostly based in universities and other knowledge-producing institutions, have the wonderful consolation of talking to themselves and their colleagues on a salary. Yet, and here's the downside, according to Bauman, they are largely disconnected from power. For his part, the literary scholar Edward Said also tried to describe a specific public role in society for the intellectual. Where Bauman's argument is sociological, Said's is normative. The choice for Said is either one of working inside the power structure or of being powerless. He urges public intellectuals to side with the weak and the dispossessed. His conception of the intellectual is one of speaking truth to power. For Said, to speak within a national discourse is to occupy a kind of prison house that limits our discursive independence and our horizons. He therefore celebrates the role of the intellectual as an outsider. To stand outside, he suggests, gives you both epistemological and moral advantages. Consequently, exile, both actual and metaphorical, is the only state that fits true intellectual endeavor. Said, of course, was an exile, and so too is Bauman, although he's not argued that this condition confers special advantages everywhere and always. Both Bauman's and Said's positions are highly questionable. Bauman's valuable insight is that the breakdown of traditional orders turns culture into a distinct sphere of action. Culture suddenly becomes something to be managed, and it's therefore central to intellectuals' self-conceptions because culture is their living space. But contemporary intellectuals are not all simply interpreters. There's good empirical evidence that the desire to legislate for how culture should be shaped and turn to profit remains very powerful in our times. Some intellectuals do indeed find ways of acting as legislators, even if that often means shaping legislation through interpretation. In other words, the ideological struggle over visions of the cultural order is not at all innocent, but does have major consequences. That's particularly so where those who articulate ideological visions are close to the centers of power. Said's all-or-nothing approach to what intellectual life ought to be does have considerable self-dramatizing appeal, and therein lies its attraction. He wrote eloquently on the consolations of outsiderness. However, this limiting conception polarizes intellectuals into the co-opted versus the free, the clean versus the corrupt, the principled opponent versus the compliant bootlicker, and the saint versus the sinner. It's neat that this schema distorts the actual complexity of how contemporary intellectuals, academics included, address the world of policy and politics. 
We may look to yet another exile, the critical theorist Theodor Adorno, for a more grounded view on the role of expertise in cultural policy, analyzing what he disparagingly, disparagingly called the culture industry. Adorno thought that intellectuals were mostly servile. He loathed the idea of an administered culture. And cultural policy is nothing if not administered by public authorities. Adorno saw culture as the source of the critical impulse. It was the counterpoint to administration. And an administered society has lost its spontaneity. However, despite the icy grip of administration, Adorno believed that a critically self-aware cultural policy was feasible and that expertise could be used for the protection of cultural matters from the realm of control by the market. In short, Adorno thought experts working within institutions to pursue culturally progressive ends could, in Bauman's terms, terms be legislators rather than, thus, rather than just interpreters. And that's what my own research suggests, whether the ends pursued are necessarily progressive or not is quite another matter, and I'll come back to that later. What might entitle intellectuals to intervene in policy debate today? Under contemporary conditions, policy-relevant expertise has become a, a key criterion for credible entry into debate. This has been increasingly the case since the Mandarin political commentator Walter Lippmann, writing nearly nine decades ago, astutely noted the strategic advantages enjoyed by experts in influencing decision-making in the increasingly complex structures of US government administration. Such complexity, Lippmann observed, demonstrated the need for interposing some form of expertness between the private citizen and the vast environment in which he is entangled. In other words, Lippmann endorsed a special place for a particular kind of intellectual elite in policy formation and implementation. Suitable credentials can be established in a number of ways. In academia, for instance, expertise is built upon research and scholarship, as well as based on the practical experience of advising and engaging in both public and private arenas. But none of this offers a guarantee of making one's voice heard. Rather, the possession of expertise merely establishes a necessary condition for the articulation of relevant perspectives for a debate on policy. It's a truism that we need resources to research the fields of cultural and communication policies. So we have to decide where our funds are going to come from and what are the costs and benefits that attach to particular funding streams, or sometimes mere funding trickles. In our complex research economy, we may and do take on a variety of roles simultaneously. What we decide to do at any time is shaped by the constraints and opportunities we face. It's a fundamental value for academics to seek the maximum independence of thought to produce high-quality research. That's the gold standard. But it's not always possible. The underlying relationship to funding affects the autonomy, framing, pace, and scope of what's done. To oversimplify, receiving a Research Council award generally ought to give you more autonomy than working as a consultant with a defined brief and an importunate client who's a mere mouse's click away. But let's not be naive. In reality, virtually no source of funding is utterly neutral in its impact on how we think about policy questions. National research councils, foundations, government departments, public bodies, charities, and the European Commission all have their own agendas. 
how they articulate their strategic priorities will always have effects on what we do and how we think. So too do universities' own research strategies. We have to acknowledge this. As academics, we also have to think about what it is to be a citizen researcher. If we're working in areas of public policy interest, we simply cannot avoid addressing how we engage as experts in the public sphere in nations, states, and internationally. We have obligations to disseminate our work widely. These derive purely from the fact of our having in-depth and wide-ranging knowledge and the need to communicate this. We've been socially privileged to accumulate our expertise over time, and in an open society, there's a general interest in sharing it as widely as possible. These issues have recently been taken up in the debate about what a public sociology might mean. Michael Burrowoy, one of the main protagonists in this discussion, argues that whether, to use his terms, professional, policy, critical or public, sociologists are all involved in the constitution and defense of civil society. Actually, I think this overstates the case and underestimates the extent to which some policy social science is inherently top-down and in the service of ruling elites. According to Edward Said's exilic ideal, which places him in the critical camp, we should contribute to the public debate as outsiders. This view derives from a classic image of the public intellectual as engaged. It dates from the Dreyfus Affair of the 1890s and is still of key normative importance. Of course, public intellectuals aren't always outsiders, far from it in fact. An outsider's careers may differ enormously over their lifetimes. Some become licensed commentators with their own slots and spots and are garlanded with honours. Others are condemned to obscurity and if they're really lucky, a posthumous revival. Even in the mainstream, very few public intellectuals achieve really significant and sustained access to the airwaves and the newspaper columns or enjoy the status of a blogger or tweeter with influence. As Régis Debray pointed out some 30 years ago, the post-World War II rise of celebrity media intellectuals created a star system for the few. The overall significance of the university as a widespread source of legitimate knowledge consequently diminished. The growing centrality of popular media has changed the rules of access to the public sphere and transformed the performances that occur. Increasingly, the celebrity media academics have been joined by a plethora of celebrity problem solvers, especially on popular television. These folk are cast as experts in everyday life. Whether it's our failures in cooking, bringing up our children, turning our gardens and houses into a domestic paradise, remodeling our bodies, succeeding in business, or just raising our sexual game, there's always a celebrity expert on hand to advise us with large helpings of what the sociologist Alfred Schütz once called recipe knowledge. Just like those miraculous culinary transformations that turn the raw into the cooked, cultural policy is also amenable to various formulaic quick fixes, whether it's advocating creative cities, cultural clusters, bohemian and industrial quarters, skills development, quotas, tax breaks, global branding or niche marketing, the recipes and the cooks abound to help governments and nations in their quest for global economic success. 
there have been repeated attempts to characterize the changing nature of expertise and intellectual life. Frequently, the rise of a new specially endowed class is hailed. In the late 1970s, the sociologist Alvin Guldner wrote about the emergence of a new powerful class of symbol-manipulating intellectuals immersed in the culture of critical discourse. In very similar vein, at the start of the noughties, the economist Richard Florida celebrated the rise and flight of the creative class, this time to admiring gasps of official credulity as governments around the world sought to install competitive economies. Here at last was a sellable vision. Such arguments about how to situate, situate intellectuals relate to structural changes in capitalism since World War II and the emergence of a so-called knowledge economy. Economic restructuring has changed how we think about and value expertise. Guldner and Florida, like Daniel Bell before them, have been part of a tradition of trying to paint new pictures of class and power as industrial society is left increasingly behind. Often, academics are flattered to be thought members of a wider knowledge or creative class. However, such words butter no parsnips. If class power has come our way, I can only observe that, as elsewhere, it's unevenly distributed, with very few exceptions. It's hard to be heard in the world of media and cultural policy formation, and harder still to have effects. I note Sonia Livingston and Peter Lunt's similar conclusion in their recent reflections on policy and audience research. Although, like me, they do urge academics to put arguments into the public domain, noting a relative success in the field of media literacy. Influencing the terms of debate is difficult because the shaping of policy has become more competitive and more complex. The multiplication of cultural and communication management consultancies, the expansion of special advisors in government, the growth of in-house research team, teams inside communications regulators, the development of specialist media and communications business journalism, all of these have recast the space available to the academy to make its views known and be taken seriously. They've reshaped the public sphere and the intellectual fields within it. And in truth, we academics have often not helped ourselves by making policy-relevant research into a minority pursuit. The exceptions prove the rule, so it would be fascinating to hear from Professors Richard Collins and Stephen Barnett what impact they think they've had as advisors to the House of Lords Communications Committee's recent inquiries. And I put my hand on my heart and I say I didn't know they were going to be here, so I have materialized them by the word. Um, the value placed on such engagement is rising precipitously in the UK as there's ever-growing pressure from public funding bodies for academics to satisfy the interests of so-called users and stakeholders, or in the latest lingo, to have an impact. What's now called knowledge transfer, or increasingly fashionably knowledge exchange, has become a key value for governments and universities operating in the culture of accountability and of accounting that's our common lot. Nearly a century ago, in his broad-ranging conception of how expertise might be mobilized for the public good, Walter Lippmann argued for an ideal of intellectual disinterest. One world war later, the sociologist Robert K. Merton, reflecting on the role of social research in the formation of policy, 
shifted Lippmann's stance towards the ideal of professionalism. The role of the expert, he wrote, always includes an important fiduciary component. This entails the responsible exercise of specialized competence by experts. Against this long-standing background of debate, I'd suggest we should distinguish between two quite different kinds of rationale for expert engagement. First, there's the normative view of the academic as a member of a class of experts with a public role to play in influencing and shaping debates on matters of public policy. But this isn't simply about opposing established orders everywhere a la Said. It's more complex. It's generated by cultural practices that lead us, as a matter of course, to contribute to discussion and deliberation through the various forms of public engagement. Oppositional critique is only one of the available options. Public engagement may and does involve the production and publication of research. But it can also entail academics joining boards and commissions, supplying expert advice to governments and agencies, advising parliamentary committees, making submissions to public inquiries, contributing to media, and so forth. Because in practice, the social organization of policy expertise is heavily concentrated in elite circles, there's also the much more basic democratic role of working with and advising civil society groups of all kinds. This significantly extends the limited scope of the so-called policy community and expands activity in the public sphere. All engagement is complex because we each have values and beliefs and we may be linked to political projects of various kinds. It's a matter of choice and principle whether we avoid institutional capture by the policy world of government departments, state agencies and commercial interests. Because universities give, them, give us space, academics are particularly well placed to make a disinterested contribution to public policy. Disinterest does not imply a lack of commitment to values and ideals. It concerns whether or not we seek benefits from our advice and whether or not that is a prime motivating force. This autonomous form of engagement is based on a proactive supply-led model. You develop ideas yourself and you freely offer them to others. Secondly, there's another quite distinct driving force that shapes contemporary policy analysis, as indeed it shapes the production of academic knowledge as a whole. That's the pressure that originates in the audit culture in which we all now work. In economic and political terms, our funding and our public validation come from being seen to meet increasingly refined performance indicators. These criteria include the assessment of the frequency, volume, and influence of our publications, and also our university's standing in the world and national league tables. There is, furthermore, increasing official emphasis on how we might help public agencies, commerce, business and industry, and the third sector of voluntary and charitable bodies to operate knowledgeably in a democratic society as opposed to the first model of an internalized culture that supplies the public sphere with spontaneously generated intellectual work, this is a necessity-driven, demand-led model. You produce research to prove that you exist, and often that's in line with what's requested. 
Public intellectuality, therefore, is wanted, but only on certain terms. Today, therefore, the older normative model of autonomous intellectuality, the ideal of freedom of thought, coexists with the dominant system and market-driven model of the knowledge class. The demands of necessity have become normative. Therein are very bones. The first model, that of freedom, is often overshadowed by the second, that of necessity. And we often shift unknowingly between the two, uncertain which norms we're obeying. Are we thinking for ourselves or for someone else or both at the same time? It's against these general considerations about the production of policy thinking that I'd like to draw on my research into creative industries policy to illustrate how cultural policy may be a political project. This makes the policy process into a competition for attention and also into a marketing exercise. Contrary to Bauman, therefore, I wish to argue that intellectuals still desire and some have the capacity to legislate, although most are indeed relegated to the role of interpreter. To illustrate my argument, I shall focus on some current developments in cultural policy in the UK and Scotland, those concerning the so-called creative economy. In 1998, shortly after Tony Blair's New Labour first took up office, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport promoted the idea of the creative industries. <clears throat> Ostensibly, these had their origin in individual creativity, skill and talent, which have a potential for wealth and job creation through the generation and exploitation of intellectual property. This policy emphasized individuals as creators and its subordinated culture to economics. In short, this vision fell completely in line with the neoliberal thinking that has dominated the UK since the days of Margaret Thatcher's governments. The creative industries don't constitute a concept. They are made up of an arbitrary group of diverse cultural, communicative and technological practices. The mystical 13 are these. And there they are, advertising, architecture, art in the antiques market, crafts, design, design of fashion, film, interactive, leisure, software, music, the performing arts, publishing, software, and television and radio. There have been various reformulations, but this simple enumeration has, has, has been surprisingly durable. What's happened subsequently isn't just of parochial interest, because creative industries policy made in London is circling the globe and has been imported into many countries as though it were a ready-made conceptual toolkit with which you can solve the problem of how to make creativity profitable. In fact, it isn't. The policy has been repeatedly revised and at the very start was based on questionable data as, admit as admitted by one of its key architects in a private seminar at Glasgow University quite recently. But this hasn't prevented the rampant diffusion of ideas to China, the European Union, and worldwide through the United Nations. The UK is therefore of particular interest because it's been one of the key ideas factories for the creative industries and creative economy discourses now being distributed throughout Europe and globally. And these ideas are not only sweeping up enthusiastic adherents, but also provoking increased intellectual opposition and critique both in Europe and in North America. Creative industries policy in the UK has been a political project closely related to the policy generation at the heart of new labour in government. 
think tanks and other forms of expertise such as that coming from policy advisors and industry figures have contributed significantly to shaping the policy process. In the UK, key individuals have moved from advocacy and think tanks into positions of strategic influence in the Prime Minister's Office, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport and other ministries, the Communications Regulator, Ofcom and the BBC. They've shaped the policy framework in practice. Just think of the careers of Patricia Hewitt, David Miliband, James Purnell, Jeff Mulgan, Matthew Taylor, Andy Burnham, Stephen Carter and Ed Richards. We certainly need a renewed focus in our research into the struggle for power and influence of ideas producers in the policy marketplace. In the UK, those who become key players through think tanks, mutating into policy advisors or consultants, operate within elite circles where the costs of entry into knowledgeable policy discussion are high. Early association with the Labour Party's modernising drive, time spent in the worlds of policy advice and or management consultancy, and extensive exposure to cultural and communications policy and strategy issues have been this group's common characteristics. In the UK, the terms of the policy discourse on the creative industries and the creative economy have become compelling. Not to buy into these frameworks is tantamount to self-exclusion from policy influence. Cultural and communications industries designated creative have been hailed as the driving force of a new economy and a rival in importance to the financial sector, which may not be the best comparator today. The evidence for claims made about the scale of the creative sector is open to question. That said, the sheer pervasiveness of creative creativity discourse as a liquid synonym for dynamism, growth, talent formation and national renewal is quite remarkable. Herein lies its attractiveness. It resonates with the new spirit of capitalism analysed by Luc Boltanski and Herve Chapello. It's fundamentally rooted in beliefs about how to manage cultural labour in conditions of global economic competitiveness. These notions are widely diffused. I've recently attended international conferences in Latin America and in Europe whose agendas show that ideas about creative industries and the creative economy are being taken increasingly seriously. My PhD students from Korea, Taiwan and Thailand want to know how creative economy ideas made in Britain can be exported and applied in their countries. I've told them that it's not quite so simple. One of the issues for our research agenda, therefore, is better to understand the sources of such policy arguments and the perspectives of those who advocate them. Some intellectuals do still seek legislative power. They aren't just interpreters. They use their expertise in the service of government rather than, as Michael Burrowoy would have it, for civil society. For such actors, know-how is the key to the actual exercise of governmental power. The scramble for intellectual dominance means that at any one time there are preferred supplies of ideas and evidence in a policy field. So far as the creative economy is concerned, unless academics are prepared to be largely uncritical advocates of dominant ideas, their ability to influence arguments is severely limited. If creative economy doctrine has been circling the globe, it's also hopped over the border. So last but not least, let me talk about cultural policy in Scotland. I think you should be interested in what's going on in this important part of the UK, 
not least on the principle that the global is to be discovered in the specific transformations of the local. At this moment, the Scottish Government is trying to set up a new entity called Creative Scotland. This body will bring together a traditional cultural agency, the Scottish Arts Council, and a moving image development body, Scottish Screen. Uh, and here again, the, the logos would have told the story, but that's life, eh? Uh, Creative Scotland has been quite some time in the making, and I could give you chapter and verse on the complex route taken by legislation in the Scottish Parliament, as well as the wider questions uh, in, raised by the so-called creative community, uh, should you wish. But I won't presume on your patience just now. For me, the issue is this. Uh, here we are, in the metropolis, which is superserved by policy ideas production. Living and working in Scotland, I'm tremendously struck by the extent of policy dependency north of the border in the broad field of culture, as well as media and communications, despite our devolved political system and the entry to power of a nationalist, independence-seeking government in 2007. As a citizen, I'm concerned by the unreflective nature of Scottish po cultural policy-making in this area, which has truly suffered from a lack of robust debate and dispassionate analysis. There's nothing to match the policy infrastructure and expertise available in London, even if we scale things down proportionately. And setting aside vociferous producer interests, there's really minimal civil society involvement in public debate. Well, this means that bodies such as DEMOS, IPPR, NESTA, the Work Foundation, Ofcom and others are prime suppliers of ideas north of the border. Now you can see the effects of this in the plan to establish Creative Scotland, which is the unloved child of two ill-matched parents, bureaucracy and intellectual dependency. Creative Scotland originated in the so-called bonfire of the Quangos. I guess there'll be another one uh, when there's a change of government next year. Back in 2003, the then Scottish Culture Minister proposed one agency to replace two, one is better than two, with no really good grounds. This Ide fix has been lodged in the bureaucratic bloodstream of the Scottish executive ever since and never seriously questioned. Why Creative Scotland? Well, creativity was then in the air. So, lacking originality, Scottish Labour imported new Labour policy and terminology without altering a comma or a full stop. The paternity suit, therefore, needs to be filed against the old coalition Scottish executive. Now, the reluctant mother of this invention will be the present Scottish Government should the Public Service Reform Bill 2009 be passed by the Scottish Parliament. Why do the nationalists not think again? Like the predecessor Labour-Liberal coalition, our present cabinet has simply taken policy ideas made in London and adopted them without any critical reflection. The framing ideas of Creative Scotland reiterate London's conception of creative industries 1998 style, not even the reframed creative economy thinking of 2008. Thus, 13 creative industries are designated in Scotland because that's what London decided was appropriate a decade or more ago. It's bizarre to embrace the neoliberal assumptions embedded in the New Labour project just as those are challenged by our profound 
financial and economic crisis. Can academics make a difference here? Where we have the relevant expertise, it's our obligation to contribute to public debate. But sometimes it really isn't easy to do so, even under seemingly ideal conditions. Here's a pertinent example. At the Centre for Cultural Policy Research, where I work, we're invited by the Scottish Arts Council to inform policy thinking on Creative Scotland back in the spring and summer of 2007. So we organised seminars attempting to explain what creative industries policy was, where it came from, and what this implied. And we undertook some elementary fact-finding about cultural expenditure in Scotland, which actually proved to be very difficult to establish. We particularly underlined the tensions faced by Creative Scotland in managing divergent economic and cultural goals within a single new agency. This was the wrong mood music, it seems, although everyone seemed most receptive at the time. Sometimes you think you're having a dialogue, and then you realise it's just a monologue. The other party has left the room, and you're still talking. We do need to understand why what we're supposed to call evidence-based analysis can be so easily ignored. It's not at all unusual, by the way. It's not restricted to cultural policy. And it's not just here in the UK that such issues occur. Just think of the protracted struggles over climate change policies during the past decade. To conclude, it's really pertinent to ask today how academics' engagement with media and cultural policy might be effective. Without our being expected to tell people what they want to hear, we're increasingly required by our governments, the funding councils, the research councils and our universities to make our knowledge widely available in the interest primarily of economic competitiveness. So today it is both virtuous and necessary to engage in knowledge transfer, KT. A fortnight ago, the Times Higher Education told us that universities' knowledge transfer units are being swamped as they write statements for grant seekers. One PR consultant was quoted as giving this utterly unvarnished advice. If you talk to researchers, they say they don't want to be in the sun, but the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills wets its pants if you're in the sun. The cake's getting smaller. If you want your cake, you have got to shout to get it. There's been a notable increase in conferences and publications in our field linked to user partners which is clearly being taken as a proxy for impact. And perhaps we should now track the predictable rising curve of media appearances and quotations involving academics, as these are the typical PR's index of success. Uh, sharpen your elbows, ladies and gentlemen. My own experience suggests that knowing the impact of your expertise in the policy domain is actually very difficult. And I say this as one who's sat on boards and given advice and sometimes I've noted you encounter something that no one in polite society ever mentions or even countenances. KR, knowledge resistance. Universities will soon be opening counselling units to cope with the anxieties provoked by those who keep getting the brush off. Well, let's not be KO'd by KR, but if we're really going to be asked to use our knowledge to public benefit, one signal challenge is to find new ways of making sure that we're actually heard so as to be more effective in shaping the politics of media and cultural policy.
Professor Livingstone, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your attention. Thank you very much indeed. I think um, every um, academic, future academic and researcher in the room is pondering hard their very um, uh, motivations for what they do. Um, so we have some time for questions, and while you're um, thinking or formulating your questions, um, I would like first to announce that after this session, in perhaps half an hour, um, everyone here is invited for a reception on the eighth floor of this building. So if you can cope with the lifts, then there is a drink um, at the top with a rather nice view. Um, but first, um, your questions. Yes. Oh, and there are microphones roving around, help, held by helpful people. It's good, good to know that people have got a reward for their patience. <laughs> or a consolation for their sorrows, well, Something like that. Yes. Hey, um, I would like to ask you um, if you're familiar with um, a book by Edmund Bernays called Propaganda. By? Edmund Bernays? Yeah. Are you familiar with the book? I'm familiar with that one. Uh, do you think it was accurate at the time and do you think it's valid for today as well? Um, is, it, is it accurate for today? Um, what, what could, would you like to elaborate a little bit further about uh, um, well, what, you're, what you're thinking? Um, well, the, the relationship between uh, private industry and the media and shaping public opinion. <coughs> what we're up against, is it? What, 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 what we're up against. Um, I, don't, I don't quite know how to, how to unpack that. I mean, we, we, know, we know a great deal, I guess, about the way in which public relations operates. We know a great deal about the way in which, uh, certainly in, in the area of policy, um, being able to dominate um, debate is, is absolutely key. And, um, but it's, in many respects, that's only the, the tip of the iceberg, I think. I think the, perhaps the really crucial, uh, crucial dimensions be before it even gets to public debate is what goes on before it becomes public debate. And, and the you know, the quite long process whereby policy ideas get hatched and, um, you know, what we're likely to what we're likely to find I think, um, should there be a change of government um, next year in, in, in Westminster is um, another, another set, if you like of similar people with similar relations but to a different party uh, peddling their wares and um, some of this, I guess, uh, you know, will have been thought of um, well in advance of it being launched uh, perhaps not that much of it actually on this occasion I, I have a sense that policy is being made a bit on the hoof uh, rather than uh, being um, carefully thought out beforehand um, Maybe I should rephrase it more direct question yeah, you, Direct questions are good <laughs> Do you think that um, uh, the public in unawareness or sort of the disregard of, of the mass media for the, um, you know, dying soldiers in Iraq, UK soldiers in Iraq, and um, that we don't see it on the newspaper every day, which probably we, we should, is, is related to um, private interest. 
Um, well, I actually think, you know, given the, I mean, it's, it sort of takes me a little bit away from, from what I was talking about, but, but um, I'm perfectly happy, to, <laughs> perfectly happy to sort of bring my 360-degree expertise, you know, to bear on this question. a book but on. I did, I did, I did, yeah. Um, I actually think the public is not at all unaware of the war in Iraq um, and uh, of its consequences and, uh, you know, was extremely divided and remains extremely divided. And uh, I think that there is, you know, even within military circles where you might least expect it, um, considerable doubt about the mission, um, both in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So I, I actually don't... I, I think there are ways, for example... Uh, and this, this has been very much part of popular media coverage right across the piece. When you start to concentrate on the impact of war on young servicemen and servicewomen, this is the way um, the, 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 the whole issue becomes crystallized for large segments of the public. I mean, you might argue that this ignores that the, the enormous numbers of people killed both in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, who are not British service personnel and you know that, that, that's a different argument but if, if your argument is that there's kind of a willful exclusion of the issues I actually I don't buy that I, I think there are you know there may be ways in which you want the issues portrayed which, which are not being portrayed as but I, I think that um, particularly the, the impact of service deaths starts to bring things home and changes uh, public perceptions. And, I, and certainly, you know, people in the military I've spoken to um, really don't buy into it. I, I, so I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think that the manufacture of consensus, if, if that's what lies behind your, your question, is, is, is at all the, the state of affairs in the UK. I think far from it. Um, yes. Uh, oh, sorry. Okay. Question up there, and then two down front. Yes. Um, perhaps it's, it's only my perception, but um, intellectuals in the U.S. are quietly engaged in uh, policy making when, when it comes to health communication, for instance, or uh, they're even advocates when it comes to doing research about the role of the media and uh, their link with uh, ethnic minorities. Uh, what? keeps intellectuals in Britain uh, from engaging at the same level, do you think? Well, I think... Um, <laughs> it's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question, yes. I, I, I think perhaps uh, we, we might need to fine-tune your, your, your impressions. I, I think it's certainly true that, that there, there are ways in which, um, on the scale of big government in the U.S., um, Intellectuals are conscripted into administrations and, and, and do play a very important role. And I think that has to do, uh, I think that kind of prominence and the, the difference of role actually has to do with the structure of government. I mean, so I, I do think there are differences in different places, actually. And I, we could be having this conversation elsewhere and uh, perhaps the, you know, the, the rather minuscule um, impact within the public domain of um, academics within the UK might be thought to be marvellous in other places. I mean, I've had that said to me too. You know, um, so it, it, it's. I, I, th I think first of all, comparison of, of systems is, is, is uh, one answer to your question. 
Um, I don't think there's been any lack of attempts you know, to, 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 to address uh, questions of equality and representation if you look at this over time. I think you would almost certainly be right if you're arguing that um, debates about the representation of ethnic minorities are not really uh, central to, to current arguments in the UK. Um, I don't know if I have a, a good answer for why that should be the case. It's certainly not, it, it certainly hasn't always been the case, and therefore I don't think there's, if you like, an inherent structural reason why it shouldn't be the case. Do you want to come back on that? Or? Uh, no, it's, it's basically just a general view of what Two questions down the front. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I don't think I need it. Yes, for the people at the back. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, your talk connects to a a report that was um, out recently um, of a a project that was funded by the Wellcome Trust, uh, done by Sarah Franklin here and other colleagues, which um, was based on a... um, interviews they've done with biological researchers uh, about the whole notion of public engagement very much in the light of Lord Drayson's um, decision to um, include public engagement in the next REF and uh, the whole kind of institutionalization of public engagement. What was interesting to me in this report is that they reflected on um, ambivalence around um, the very duty um, or, or what, what we seem maybe to take as accepted, the notion that um, in the first place um, this is a duty and an obligation mm-hmm. um, of the public intellectual, uh, the academic. And, and they describe it as, as the, that their interviewees largely saw it as a professional anomaly in many ways. Um, and I wanted, um, you know, your reflection on this, because you seem, obviously, to, to, to take it as, you know, as your point of departure. And yeah. I wonder if, if ever some doubt crept <laughs> into well, you. Doubt, 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 is, doubt, doubt is, sits on my shoulder all the time, actually. <laughs> um, I, I, don't think, uh, I don't think I was um, in any way arguing Lord Drayson's case. I mean, he's, he's, he's my model two, not my model one. I think there are, if you like, I think there are, two quite different things which I was trying to get at. Uh, One is um, because we operate within a system of public funding and because uh, we are held accountable um, rightly or wrongly we could debate the rights and wrongs of that that this um, produces a certain kind of system that encourages a certain kind of production. That's that's, that's one argument. There's quite a different argument which, which, which is the one I would want to advocate, which is if we have what we might and you know, these, these are ideal types so I'm yeah. sure I don't need to explain that to you but I will just say that for the record if, if, we're, if we're pursuing um, curiosity driven research if you like, uh, research for its own sake in as much as one does that um, would you want that to be a kind of private uh, production yourself or your small coterie of friends. Well, you might. You're perfectly free to to do so. But I think there's something inherent, if you like, in the enterprise of research that 
inclines you to make as many people as you can possibly encourage aware of what, of what your arguments are and what your findings are. And that's the position I take. You know, I, I think that, and then I think, okay, then there's another step in the argument, which is, um, if, if I do that, and I think this has pertinence for public debate, because I think something is going terribly wrong, at least according to my analysis, um, at least if I put this argument into the public domain, it might conceivably rectify something. I don't see how this um, ties me, or you know, that position to, if you like, the government's desire to mine the knowledge factory in, in ways that are extremely reductive in my opinion and, and very um, contrary to probably the best outcomes. But so does that does that clarify yeah. my position? Um, I would I would hate I would hate to be thought to be um, occupying the wrong the wrong model. You know, um, there's the virtuous model and there's the, the, the bad model. And so, yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, you're now asking about uh, about ambivalence. Um, does that? I mean, my point about ambivalence, actually, uh, I, I think again was I hope addressed by what I said, which is that um, uh, in a curious way, I think in practice, you know, the, the, we do something hybrid, actually. And, and, and if you're if you're then reflective about what you do, you are necessarily ambivalent. Uh, Professor Schlesinger, I'm here as a practitioner rather than an academic. Uh, you referred, understandably, to Ofcom as achieving heights, or apparently achieving heights of public, uh, the heights of political discourse. I mean, public knowledge, in other words. I mean, I put it to you that 95% of the population don't know that Ofcom exists. Yes. I mean, however admirable the publications are, and they are admirable. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, therefore, sort of throwing this back into your lap, I mean, don't you think that the academic profession has to uh, find some way in, uh, to achieve a, a wider audience? And, and is this by simply by being better, or is there a mechanism? Or I mean, what is your dream? My dream? <laughs> well... <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to be put on the couch tonight. Um, let, let me just sort of rewind slightly to, to where you started. Um, let, let me be absolutely clear about what I was trying to say. Um, I think because Ofcom has got a lot of intellectual firepower, you know, it, collects, it collects more bright people working on policy than any, any, any other entity within the, the field of communications, as far as I know. Um, the outcome is a continuous plethora of reports which are, you know, you can argue with but are exceedingly well researched and well worked out and the thing that has clearly irritated government and it irritated the, the Labour government as much, you know, at one point uh, as much as it clearly has irritated the Conservatives is that um, the domination of the policy field means that it, you're, you're more or less having to fight against the regulator in order to articulate your own political perspective. So I think, I think that's the point I was making. So it wasn't um, a peon of praise to Ofcom. It was, I, was, I was just trying to be analytical about the position it occupies. Um, perhaps 95%, actually probably 
for the purposes of making a complaint, um, say about your receiving a silent call or somebody slamming um, or um, things going wrong with your tuning, I, I guess actually it wouldn't be true to say that 95% of the public don't know about Ofcom. I think people kind of find their way to, in, in the complaints making uh, department of their lives. I think in terms of I mean, the, the other point which I'm making, uh, which we absolutely have got, is that um, discussion of policy is extraordinarily professionalised, and if you don't keep up with it, literally from week to week, you, you just you just miss the point. And most people are not going to make that investment. Uh, they don't need to. They don't want to make that investment. But the 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 consequence, if you like, of the the inability of the vast majority of people to articulate an interest which can fit into those kinds of policy debates is, is that they're kind of disenfranchised. That's my point. Um, I don't think there are easy ways around it. I think there are some issues, for example, let's say of uh, uh, children's television or about whether the news should be impartial uh, or whether, um, you know, too many newspapers should be owned by one person. I think the public will have views about those things, you know, on a, on a, on a large scale, and there, you know, there, there may well be quite sound intuitions, but they won't be kind of in, informed views. So let's try to address the first part of your question. Second part is um, the role of academics, and I suppose um, uh, my lecture was a, a kind of um, ambivalent lament. Um, you know, on the one hand, I think we ought to be getting stuck in. Um, on the other hand, I think that for most, for most of us, uh, and even those who, who do manage to get into discussion with people in, in the policy world, um, it's actually exceedingly difficult. Uh, yet at the same time, um, going back to my answer to the previous question, because I believe in Model 1, I think we have to do it, um, even though it may appear to be futile. And I think sometimes um, you don't actually know what the cumulative effects of people putting arguments into public space might be, actually, or indeed in networking. So, um, what can we do? Well, you know, some people uh, are exceedingly good, maybe, at writing um, newspaper articles or, or, or doing interviews and, and getting points across. Um, it's not given to everybody to do that sort of thing, but, you know, that, there, there are ways of of popularising arguments, I think, which, if you like, the translation that we have to engage in from uh, academic research into comprehensible argument um, seems to me to be an absolutely key part of the way forward. So I hope that at least goes some way to us answering your question. I'm going to use my chair's prerogative to jump in and ask you a question, if I may. Um, I'm wondering about Model 3. Uh, maybe that's just because if you say there's two models, I feel bound to identify a third. Yeah. But I think you paint a picture of the lone academic against the government. Mm -hmm. um, and the lone academic has the choice of research for their own sake or research on demand as needed. But there's, isn't there a model three in which academics hook up with others, yeah. um, act politically, become part of a campaign yeah. um, for all kinds of reasons? And I wonder... Um, as we face some political decisions about who our best friends might be and what movements we might become part of, uh, where do you think that's a legitimate route? Well, I, I think, um, you know, if you heard my brief encomium to um, Sylvia Harvey, uh, obviously mm -hmm. I think it's legitimate. And um, 
I'm not sure it's a model, but I think it's certainly um, a strategy. Um, whether it's a model, I, I, I actually, I mean, I wouldn't expect you to listen that carefully to what I said, Sonia, but, but um, uh, I mean, it's pretty clear to, you know, my, my, my argument is very much a sociological argument. So, you know, I, whilst, whilst um, you know, we, we take obligations on ourselves, um, I do think both the models are actually very much rooted in, in, in collective practice, actually. They're about collectivities and, and what collectivities do, what we do, or what we might do, if, if you like, as collectivities. Um, but uh, I will go away tonight and, and think about Model 3 and whether Model 3 really exists or, or, or not. But I, I, I certainly think, if you're saying, um, and, then, and that, again, you know, if you just look at the history of debates about policy over recent years, um, there have periodically been coalitions. Uh, there are lobbies, you know, mm. like um, viewers, and, viewers and listeners. Um, um, there, there, there have been campaigns that are quite long-standing campaigns like uh, press and broadcasting freedom. Um, it, this is uh, academics. Um, I, I mean, we, 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 I think we're both at the same meeting not long ago where a kind of policy network um, of academics within, within a subject association at least began to talk to began to talk to itself and, and try to get the measure of the problem and. and uh, and also um, how you might address people with influence um, in, a, in a collective way. So I absolutely don't dismiss it. I think, um, it's, I think it's the political motivation behind those collectivities. Uh-huh. I think we can speak en masse as um, objective observers. I think yeah. it's when those motivations become political, which they do for many academics well, for course, all kinds of reasons. Uh, of course, and again, that's not excluded by anything I said. Uh-huh. I, I think that the... Potential difficulties, um, and knowing, you know, knowing what academics are like, you know, what do you get people to sign up to that has durability? Um, um, if, if somebody writes, you know, a statement of principle, uh, they'll, 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 there's almost inevitably a subclause that I'm going to disagree with. Well, I may override my my distaste for that particular subclause or paragraph, uh, but you know, if, if the stakes are high, and uh, it, I think it could well be. You know that we're, we're, we're going into a, a moment when, when the stakes are actually very high. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think that's excluded by anything I've said. But I'm, I'm very happy that Model Three has been <laughs> really given some breath of life this evening, and, and none may it flourish. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily advocating it, but anyway, there are lots of be Model Three leader. Um, there are lots of hands going up, so um, I'm going to um, call on um, Steve Professor Barnett, who was called upon yeah. by your lecture. Yeah, he was, and here he is. Well, I think that's for others to say. Um, uh, Philip, that, uh, that was a terrific intellectual tour de force, and thank you for that. Um, and and, and the, it's just prompted so many thoughts, but I'm going to limit myself to two or three. On Ofcom, I think one of the things that you have put your finger on for me is the importance of um, the creation of a space for debate for people, um, and, and, and this term stakeholders is one that I don't like, but organizations or individuals who don't actually have any particular purchase, any particular institutional power, uh, or any resources behind them, but are still able to submit ideas uh, as individuals or as, ac- or as ac- 
it's quite slow to take off, but I think more and more of the, that plethora of consultations have actually produced some really quite interesting, um, that prompted some quite interesting reflections from individuals and organisations with very little money, but, but some quite good ideas. And I'm, as you were talking, I was thinking, I'm, I am actually much more worried now about the Conservative Party threats to... Um, I have to say I think it's very insidious I think there's a lot of this that comes back to and I'm not being paranoid here but it does actually come back to the power of BSKIP and, 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 and murder uh, I think that's for a private discussion but uh, I think there are, there are issues there about um, th there are particular institutions who do not like the power that Ofcom has and are trying to whittle it down can I come back to the question of models because I think one of the issues around this is resources one of the questions talked about the United States. If you go to America, there are organizations like the Consumers Union and the Project for Excellence in Journalism who are well-funded and provide a counterpoint to particularly the commercial lobbies um, and actually provide another forum, if you like, for academics and intellectuals to be able to exercise some uh, influence. And I just wonder to what extent there might be an opportunity or some way in which we could... Um, academics, intellectuals, people who are interested could uh, tap into some kind of uh, equivalent kind of um, uh, uh, public institution. VLV, you mentioned, uh, Sylvia's terrific initiative, no money. And when you've got no money, it's very, very difficult to counteract the, uh, the, the resource-heavy uh, influences, particularly in the commercial sector. Uh, final point, following on from that, is one organisation you didn't mention um, is the BBC. And it seems to me that as uh, a very significant public intervention in the cultural industries, one thing the BBC does do is pr to provide a focus for pr precisely those kinds of ideas which may articulate the public good but are, not, but are different from the traditional commercially driven or even ideologically driven ideas of, of politicians? Yes. Um, well, just to take the last first, I mean, with, with some reservations, you know, I, th I think that um, the, uh, the arguments about public value, for example, you know, are a translation, I think, of market imperatives into another discourse and a kind of shadow, shadow language for, um, for what the BBC does. Um, so I think, yes, I mean, it's up to a point, I think. And, and undoubtedly, um, all the arguments about the, the scale and scope of the BBC, which, which have some legitimacy, in, in, without a doubt, um, have to do with its, its, the cultural space that it occupies. And, and uh, um, the second point about models, uh, you, you're absolutely right about resources. I mean, if I were to go back to some earlier work I did, you know, this would be essentially about like lobbies, resource-poor lobbies, um, getting the occasional toehold in, in, in public debate, and no more than that, because the sustainability of argument is, is absolutely tied to your having a, an institutionalized base. There's no question about that. So I, I completely agree with that. Uh, quite how it might come about, I don't know. And uh, I guess if, if you were to see... Uh, a different kind of struggle going on about the nature of 
public service in which um, it really starts to become so threatened that it has a mobilizing effect, you might see the money begin to flow. I don't know. But I, 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 can't, I can't predict the, uh, the conditions in which that might happen. And I have to say that the BBC, obviously being party pre to debates about itself, has its hands tied behind its back, but in, in many ways has the capacities to, to articulate some of these arguments and you know, also has some other stupid leadership decisions going on at the same time which hamper it. So uh, that's, that's complicated. Your first point, space for debate, um, yes, I think you absolutely got what I was about, uh, but, but um, there are individuals who, who, who made submissions. Uh, submissions actually are quite a lot of work. I mean, if you're going to do a proper submission, it's a lot of work, and that, that also requires resources, and perhaps that's why uh, the vast majority of submissions come from so-called stakeholders, and those stakeholders tend to be uh, companies, um, consultants, uh, academics, um, established committees, other, other public bodies and that sort of thing. Uh, but it, it doesn't totally, and I think you read more of these than I, I do, um, it certainly doesn't squeeze out, um, if you like, the possible space for articulating uh, a range of views. And um, if the, the threat uh, to um, Ofcom, you know, is, is, is to kind of decapitate its, its, its so-called policy-making um, ability, um, uh, I, I think it would have direct implications for uh, whether or not this kind of consultative process um, carries on as whether, whether it's effective or not, I don't know, but it, at, least it, at least it allows arguments to be there for public consultation. Right? I think, it, I think it would be difficult to imagine something equivalent um, if, you, if, 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 if the policy objective is, is, is to remove, if you like, the brain from the regulator, which is what it seems to be. Um, Unless there's a DCNS consultation process. Well, there have been. There have there been. Have been. Yes, there have. Um, well, what would it be called? Um, and would it do the same thing? Consultation itis seems to me to be a kind of quite a new labour thing, actually. Not exclusively, but it has been a very much a stamp of, of the last decade or so. We're running out of time. Um, I can see one hand in the middle, and there was one looking on Okay, I think we'll make this the last question then, so that people can get that promised um. drink. Then I, I wanted to ask you to go back and expand on the concept of public value. Yeah. And um, do you see any kind of role for intellectuals and academics in uh, somehow coming up with a definition of what constitutes public value? Is this useful for the BBC as a public service? Is it at all transferable to other aspects of cultural institutions that use public funding in any way? Is it at all applicable to the commercial Sector in terms of what might be of public value, and I'm, I'm thinking of the example you gave from Tate, which yeah. you know well, could um, perhaps fall into that uh, category. I mean, I, Is there I, a role I, for us here? I could sort of just defer to my esteemed colleague Richard Collins, who's written very interestingly about this. I mean, I, I, I do think um, what's happened with public value is that 
it's, um, it, it's come out of um, a way of thinking called new public management and, and been translated um, into government and it occupies, I mean it, it's certainly a product of intellectuals if you like, um, academics and, and also um, policy people and uh, it has been worked and reworked and fashioned um, quite expediently, which is not to say it has no use usefulness um, to, to, to deal with you know, precisely the problems of how do you get a proxy for accountability where you're not using the market I and mean, that's the fundamental purpose of it and um, that's why it has proved to be picked up and used by arts organisations uh, as, as well as the BBC and uh, um, whether that's going to have durability I think is anybody's guess I mean in the present context it's it's um, it's got a sort of protective quality, I think, and it's it's not very di different in many ways from the, the, the three-letter word ref that was mentioned earlier. You know that, that, that if if academics are are to be seen to be good, then they must produce. Um, not only must they produce, they must produce excellently, and then we can say that there is public value. So it's these the, you know the, the terminologies are perhaps less important than the fundamental conception that drives these kinds of systems of accountability. And I don't, I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't, I don't, um, I don't think that we should just sort of go out to play without accounting for it. I think that what we have to do is really to assess the impact on ourselves and, and, and on the, the kind of knowledge we produce of, the, of these kinds of systems. And also how shadowing the market um, affects the sort of decision making that public sector bodies make, um, and, and, and whether it affects their willingness to <coughs> take risks, uh, whether it um, affects the scope of uh, the kinds of project they might fund, and so on. So I think it opens up a lot of questions, um, as, as rather than closing them down to be honest. So it has a value, certainly. <coughs> So we'll um, hold any other questions for a more informal um, meeting upstairs on the eighth floor. And if I can just now ask you um, once more to thank our speaker very much. <laughs>